morning. Uh, the reading is from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. <coughs> Excuse me. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. So um, we, we come to part two of our series of lessons from life in exile from the first half of the Old Testament book of Daniel. If you were with us last week, we looked at the first seven verses of chapter one. Um, you may be wondering why we heard those again. Um, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just uh, me being mean to Sue by making her read all the names out again. Um, but today we're looking at verses eight to 21, the second half of the chapter. But it made sense to remind ourselves of the context of what we're looking at today. And uh, for those who missed it last week or um, who haven't managed to catch up on SoundCloud, the first seven verses of Daniel tell the story of four young lads from the Israelite nobility who are trafficked, essentially, after their nation is conquered back to Babylon, the superpower that's defeated them. And this had all been anticipated by the the prophets. God told his people he was going to let these big regional empires, Assyria, then Babylon, conquer them and take them away into exile for 70 years. And we looked at this um, kind of clever strategy of Babylon of taking the cream of the future ruling Israelite crop and putting them into a three-year intense program of formation to remake them in the image of Babylon. This is sort of cultural imperialism on a grand scale. And we looked at the, uh, the different ways they did that through isolating the Hebrew four, as we call them, from their native culture, um, you know, integrating them into the lifestyle of the Babylonian court, enculturating them in the language, the literature, the customs of Babylon, and redefining their identities, uh, replacing their birth names, which related to their faith, with new names connected to uh, the Babylonian religions. So we said this has been described as a wholesale act of identity theft designed to strip Daniel and co of their upbringing, their culture, and and turn them into Babylonians. The goal was to completely alter who they became. And we were left asking the question, how could these four teenage lads, you know, likely 13, 14, 15 years old at the start of all this, possibly hope to resist this level of cultural indoctrination? How could they possibly retain any sense of their own identity, faith, practices? How could they stay faithful to God in these circumstances? So this morning we're going to look at Daniel's response and the response of his friends in the face of all this pressure. Now, last week I introduced the subject of the challenges of an unfamiliar culture with tales of my incompetence in using London transport when I first moved here a number of months ago, which is embarrassing when trains and planes and buses are pretty much my kids' favorite things. Um, this week we're looking at food. So from uh, 2008 to 2010, Jess and I lived in Uganda. Uh, if, put your hand up if you've ever lived abroad. Okay, oh, quite a few of us. Okay, keep your hand up. Are you still put your hand up if you're living abroad now. Great. Okay, lovely. Well, lovely having you here. Love having all nations together in church. It's brilliant. Okay, living abroad can be um, a fascinating and unsettling experience. I guess the circumstances 
that have led to us living abroad can play a role in that. We chose to go to Uganda. Um, I'm nodding at Jess. We did. We, yes, we chose to go to Uganda. We weren't forced. Um, but as we've seen, Daniel, um, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they had no choice. They were kidnapped. They were carried off into Babylon. And of all the things that you notice when you're in a different country, one of them is food. Now, we lived uh, at a rehabilitation center for um, children who've been living on the streets on the beautiful banks of Lake Victoria. In that picture, you can't quite see it, but the lake is there in the distance. Couldn't get to the lake itself because there were kind of 400 meters of snake-infested swamp between us and the lake. Um, But the center was um, amazing. It was beautiful. It was off-grid. So there was a little bit of solar power, um, but there was no mains electricity. uh, So a fridge was out of the question, um, which meant that meat was a really rare treat. And for the most part, the children and the staff at the center ate three main foods. Poche, which is kind of maize flour ground up and then um, made into a sort of a cake. Um, and rice and beans. Poche, rice and beans. Plus a few of the greens that we could kind of grow on the farm. I think that's in the field there. It looks like tomatoes. So we had fields that we grew various crops in. But one evening after dark, actually I remember the day, it was the 8th of December because it was my dad's birthday, Jess and I had finished up for the day, we were sitting um, back in our home watching an episode of The West Wing, which we did each evening on our laptop by the light of the single bulb that uh, went out at about 8.30pm each evening when the, uh, the batteries ran out. And there was a knock at the door, and uh, it was our guard in Simbi. And he said to me, Uncle, he said, uh, it's time to go and get the cow. Now, you have to understand, we had two cows on the, on the site of this model farm, and I had a rather checkered relationship with these cows. Um, one of them once threw me, um, and that's a story for another day. Um, and in my mind, I, I assumed from what he said that one of the cows had escaped and then Simbi was fetching me to try and help retrieve it, as if I would be any good at that. Um, for the record, even the youngest of our street kids was more skilled and better with our cows than I was. But as I put my boots on, stepped out into the dark, and Simbi went over to our car and climbed into the passenger seat. I sort of thought, how far has this cow got? <laughs> um, and it was then that he explained to me that uh, a nearby school in the village, um, a Muslim school called the Turkish Light Academy, celebrates Eid each year by slaughtering a bunch of cows and giving them as gifts to the local community. And uh, they had a cow for us. So this was the cow that we had to go and get. So I uh, drove over to the school wondering how we were going to transport a cow in the back of our car. Um, and when we got there, people swarmed around us. It was kind of quite a big operation. The head teacher pointed to some of his students who they opened the boot and they brought over and then loaded four enormous pieces of meat. It turned out each was a quarter of a cow and we were getting four quarters, uh, an entire cow in the boot of our car. And the, uh, the boot was closed. We were sent away, um, sent on our way, you know, our shock absorbers bottoming out on every single bump of the road as we went home. So we arrived um, back home, it was 9pm and we had a whole cow, a whole raw cow and no means of refrigeration and I wondered what are, what are we going to do with this, um, how does this work and fortunately our amazing house parents and the children in their care knew just what to do, here's a picture of a few of them, you can just about make out some of the meat there in the back of the car and uh, Lyrica looking delighted um, at the arrival of this meat. And so 30 children, six staff, set to lighting all the charcoal stoves. You know, it's sort of late at night now. Uh, cutting up the meat, roasting it, smoking it, boiling it, cooking 
it every which way you can imagine. Um, uh, and this process took all night. It was a night of cooking meat. Um, but then it was time to feast. And what a feast it was. Uh, like I said, meat was a, a rare treat. So everyone on site just gorged themselves on what I have to say was some of the best beef that I've tasted. Um, you know, 48 hours later, the whole cow was gone. Um, like I said, we really feasted. Now, of all the things in this program of enculturation that Daniel and co. could have taken a stand against, food might seem a surprising choice. Daniel, his friends, find themselves suddenly exposed to daily feasting, probably beyond their imaginations. Babylon was famous for its its culinary excesses and other excesses as well. We read in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and drink from his own table, the richest affairs. But in Israel, food was an important spiritual marker. Their approach to food was defined in the, the law that God gave them at Sinai. It was part of what made them distinctive. And to have eaten this food would have made Daniel and his friends ritually unclean, which was a big deal in Israel. It wasn't the same as sinning, but being ritually unclean really mattered. So uh, in verse 8, Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asks the chief official for permission to skip this part of the process, which is a risky move in itself. However, God causes the official to be favorably minded towards Daniel, but he's afraid of what the king might do to him, probably rightly so, if he presents these young men who have been placed in his care in a poor condition at the end of this process. So this is kind of high stakes for the official. He's not sure. Daniel's response, turn to the guard, you know, who the official had placed over them. You know, it's cheeky. It's like when your kids go from one parent to the other, trying to get a different answer. Um, Maybe that's just my, no, okay. And he basically says, Daniel says, sorry, Mr. Guard, we're doing Veganuary this year. Um, you know, so they were doing this, the vegetable thing, way before it was cool. And he says, um, you know, let us eat a diet of vegetables and water for 10 days, then compare our appearance to the other young men who are eating the royal food. Yes, they're definitely vegan, aren't they? Couldn't resist a little, you know, you'd all be so much better off if you did it our way. Try the Daniel diet. Sorry. The vegans, well done for anyone doing veganuary and helping save our planet. It's a good thing, really. I shouldn't mock it. Um, verse 15, 10 days later, they are looking healthier and better nourished than all the other young men who are eating the royal food. And so the guard takes away their choice food and gives them all vegetables instead. Can you imagine being one of the other young men? Yeah, thanks a lot, Daniel. <laughs> And then verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now, just to pause a moment, did God give these young men these gifts and abilities directly because of the stand they took? I'm not sure, but we know that God looks for character in his leaders, and we know that character is shaped by our choices. You know, the moment-by-moment moment choices we make uh, shape and form the character that we become. And so what you have here are four young men demonstrating character, and perhaps God saying, as he does with other leaders in the Bible, you know, 
These are some people that I can use. These are some people I'm going to use. And yes, in fairness, the Bible um, sometimes shows uh, God choosing people with a shocking lack of character to, to use, but character is definitely a plus, and God equips these lads for the purposes that he has planned. Three years later, graduation day arrives. The chief official comes and presents these four to King Nebuchadnezzar, um, who interviews him. It's kind of, I guess it's kind of like a viva, and he finds that Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, to give them their new Babylonian names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are head and shoulders above their peers in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar is a fan. And the story finishes by telling us that Daniel remains in the palace until the, the, the first year of King Cyrus. You know, Daniel keeps his place of influence for the whole of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and beyond that, which of course doesn't tell half the story of the ups and downs and the moments of peril that Daniel experiences that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. The point of this series is to consider the question, how do we live faithfully as disciples of Jesus in the cultural landscape we find ourselves in today? I talked last week for the, about the need for us to consider the prevailing culture of the day, to think about how it's shaping us, how it's forming us, and ask who we are becoming within that, because we are all shaped by our culture. And I suggested quite a long list of reasons why I think we need to be questioning the cultural moment we find ourselves in today in particular, what we see going on in the world, what we see going on in our own lives and, and in the lives of those around us, those we uh, love and care for. Because by all manner of matrix, the fruit of the last 10 years or so has not been good. I'm not going to rehash it all again, um, that kind of analysis. If you're interested, go back and listen to it uh, from last week. And clearly, there are huge differences in our experience today. Um, uh, you know, 21st century Britain and uh, Daniel's in Babylon, several centuries BC. But in common with him, I think that we can say that we live in both unfamiliar and unchosen times. And that the cultural landscape, not least the, you know, that created by the, the digital revolution has created an immersive experience that is impossible to imagine us not being formed by. Not just kids and teens, all of us. And when you find yourself in an overbearing culture that threatens or promises uh, to change you, to change how you think, how you relate, how you behave, your psychology, there are two main ways that you can respond. So the first is separatism. So that is to withdraw and to seek to disengage from that culture. You know, so essentially, you could call this the Amish approach, you know, where you basically say, we're not even going to go there. In fact, we're going to withdraw from the world. We're going to step away. We're going to create our own alternative culture far from the reaches of these um, cultural influences. And to be fair, this has been the approach that Christians have taken in various periods of history, you know, from the um, Jewish Essene tradition in Jesus' day, uh, you know, when the Romans ruled and they went out into the wilderness to do things their own way. 
And you've got the Qumran community, the early separatists to whom we uh, owe the passing down of some of the best copies of the, the early scriptures that we have. Throughout the history of the church, monastic movements have often been sparked by a desire or a call to step away out of the mainstream and live differently. Um, Many who boarded boats sailed to North America in the 17th century went with that same spirit, to step away from culture and nation. And I think there's a time for that. And I've heard people argue that, that this might be a time for that too for Christians. But the truth is that the Bible teaches much more that Jesus... Jesus' followers are not called to withdraw from the culture in which they find themselves. In fact, much of the New Testament is written to help early Christians understand how to remain in their culture, but not be formed by it. We paraphrase Jesus um, to talk about being in the world, but not of the world. And yes, Jesus withdrew at times for prayer and reflection, and he modeled that to his disciples. He did that to in order to prepare himself to step back into the world and to conduct his ministry, proclaiming, demonstrating the good news of the kingdom in the midst of Roman-occupied Israel. Second option is syncretism. You're just giving in and assimilating to the culture as it stands. Again, there are notable periods in the history of Israel, in the Old Testament, and in the history of the church since when God's people have just abandoned their call to live distinctively um, as light in a dark world. If you can't beat it, join it. Or just try and ride it out. And I think, in truth, you could argue that this has probably been more kind of descriptive of the approach of the church in this country at least, over the last few decades. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has looked at my life and wondered at times, well, how different am I really? And both of those approaches were options for Daniel. He could have said, you know, when being shipped off to Babylon, I'm not doing it, I refuse um, to engage with the program, just make me a slave. Of course, it's possible that that approach might not have worked. In fact, it could have cost him his life. Many who have opted out of dominant cultures have been crucified for it, literally or figuratively. Or, and this is surely what we might have expected from four teenage lads experiencing the horror of their circumstances, they could have simply just given in. They're going to be here 70 years, don't make a fuss, could be worse, they're in the palace, they've got no chance of making it back to Israel, just make the best of it, at least the food's good. But it's interesting that they don't do either of those things. They don't refuse, but they don't give in. Out of all the process of enculturation they undergo, there's only one thing that they choose to make a stand on at this point in these three years of training. The food. Not the literature, not the language, not the customs, not even the names as far as we can tell. Remember we talked about how significant and offensive those name changes would have been to them. It reads like they were model students engaging as best they could within their host culture. Why did they do that? I think it's because they understood that God had brought them to Babylon for a purpose. To fulfill his plans using the opportunities that they were given to develop their leadership and their influence. They didn't separate, neither did they assimilate. 
As I said, food was an important spiritual marker for the people of Israel. They drew the line there and they said, we're not going to do this. And in that, I think there are a couple of things worth reflecting on in their approach as we consider what it it looks like to live as followers of Jesus today. Um, Living in the world as we find it, um, but not giving into the cultural pressures. Again, if you want a list of what I think those are, um, or some of them, you need to go back to part one. And the first is to take a stand. The first step to resisting a culture is to decide where you're going to take a stand. Where are you going to do? Where are you going to do something different? We've talked differently. Um, we sorry. We talked previously about the pressures of the digital age and the power to shape how we think and feel and relate and behave. So, what kind of stand will you make? Not necessarily with the digital world. Sorry. Um, that shows that you're not simply just going to go along with it all. I don't have time to kind of flesh that out more now. But instead, why don't we just take a moment? of quiet and just ask the Lord if there's anything in particular that we could do to make a simple stand in our lives this week against the prevailing culture. Let's just take a moment to be quiet and just be open to how the Spirit might be prompting us. I honestly um, don't think the thing that we pick is the most important aspect of this. I think it's enough to simply decide something, to make a choice that says to us and maybe to others that we are not subject to what Jesus called the kingdom of this world. We are his and we want to live his way, starting with. Now, the second thing, and um, I'll come into land after this, is that we have to recognize the importance of community to living faithfully and making a stand. Um, Yes, there are heroic individuals in the Bible, but to come back to the question we're asking, how can these four teenage lads far, far, far from home possibly make any sort of stand remaining faithful to God, to Yahweh, in the face of these pressures? And I think at least part of the answer lies in their friendship. The four of them went together. And they stuck together. And I'm certain that they discussed and prayed about their predicament together. Remember what we looked at last week about how isolated people are so much more easily influenced and controlled. I can't see Daniel lasting long in Babylon without the support of his friends. And so I'd like to ask, who in your life will support you to live faithfully to God? Who can you share your stands with? Um, I've got two really close friends. We live far apart now, but we text regularly and when we meet when we can. And we have fostered this friendship over the last 10 years intentionally to, so that we can speak into and question each other's lives, um, ask questions of um, you know, our, our faith, our marriages, our parenting, our work, you name it. And that may sound a, a little bit intense, but honestly, it helps me more than anything else to live faithfully to Jesus in each of those areas of life and not be defined by the prevailing culture. You know, and I, I love this church. It's been such a privilege getting to know this church over the past months. But 
as we head into 2022, I pose the question, what role are we really playing in one another's lives to help us live faithfully to Jesus in this context of a really challenging culture? What role are we expecting others to play in our lives? It's great that we can get together on Sunday mornings like this and, you know, um, worship together and pray and listen to scripture and break bread and wine and, um, and do baptisms and share fellowship over a cup of coffee. But honestly, if that's as far as it goes, then I think we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that this probably won't be enough to play a, a significant role in shaping who we become you know, in who and how we respond to the culture, how we live faithfully to Jesus. I'm just going to throw that out there and let it hang, and it's something we'll develop our thinking on, I think, in the coming months. But mull on it this week. Who in your life might you be able to uh, foster that kind of relationship with? Community is key when you're up against it. And don't panic if you don't know where to start. Um, you know, that's where we come in. Um, that's my job. Uh, John's job to help all souls connect and to deepen our connection with one another and with God. Um, so please know that that's something important to me this year. So much more I would have loved to have got into this morning, but I think we better end there. But do go away and you know, chat about this stuff. Think about this stuff more. Um, some of you have got a bit of a drive home. You know, when we were in Uganda, we went to church in town and uh, about 30 minutes drive away, we, we knew it was a good sermon when we found ourselves just, um, you know, discussing it on, on, on the way home when we were still back and coming back to our compound. That was a sign that we'd been really kind of provoked in our thinking. So no pressure, but have a think about how you um, uh, go away and think about this and chat about this.